hello and welcome to episode 178 of the 1099 for the week of December 10th, 2018. I am your host, who's extremely sick and nasally, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is a writer at the Atlantic Variety, The Outline, and Rolling Stone, as well as a foremost expert on all things esports, Will Parton. Will, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me on the show. It's been... A roller coaster of a week trying to figure out different times to set this all up, but uh, just crazy weather situations. And, you know, you've been your Internet's been down. You're on the East Coast right now, right? Yeah, in North Carolina. So I've had a I've had a snowy week, which has thrown my uh, Internet out of them. Not working for most of the week. It's so silly to say that, uh, holy shit, everyone needs internet because uh, we were without it for so long. But when it actually goes out, you do have that moment of like, oh, my God, if I'm a freelancer or anyone who works at home, this is now impossible. I need to just go somewhere else, figure out my life. In most cases, I'll just sit there and stare at the ceiling. Essentially, like it, the internet being out is the same as be, like the power being out for me. What was your game plan when everything shut off? Well, I started by uh, I was tethering to my phone and then, uh, you know, I got one of those messages of like you, you've 90 percent of your uh, monthly data in about two days. Uh, so after that, actually, that was the impetus I needed to to trundle through the snow and get out to a coffee shop a few blocks away. The coffee shop technique is smart. I didn't even think about that. So uh, today for the actual podcast, now that we do have internet, we're mostly going to be covering esports. But just when I say that, just know that if you're not a fan of esports, that's fine. Because I'm someone who, I feel like it was 100 episodes ago now, talked about esports on here with an expert. And I still just know nothing. And this is more coming from the inquisitive what is the current state of esports? What's going on in Overwatch, in Dota, in League of Legends? Um, we're going to go in-depth at, at some points. So if you are a fan, you know, keep listening. But a lot of this is going to be for the people like me who are like, hey, look, I understand a certain level of esports, but I'm just curious about what's going on there, what's changed, what that environment is like. And let's start as broad and, <laughs> and dumb as possible here because I know so very little. Uh, what is the biggest game? people are watching right now and maybe the more important question is why do you think that is why is this game dominating well that's a tricky question <laughs> um if you're looking at just, you know, what is what is the biggest esports in the world you know it's league of legends uh that's in terms of raw viewership um that's in terms of sort of stability and sort of money in the scene um, but, you know, what counts as an eSport is maybe a trickier question than some people would admit. Um, a lot of people are going to point to Fortnite. Epic put $100 million into it. Um, but a lot of people think it's not an eSport. Um, but as far as, you know, thinking what are the kind of the, the clear capital E eSports you're looking at, League of Legends, Dota 2, Overwatch, fighting games, um, you know, maybe Call of Duty to some degree. But those are really the big ones. Is for League of Legends, is it because it was early to esports because it's free, just a combination of all that? Because I remember, and this is not like an old man hipster thing, but I played the hell out of League of Legends when I was in college and before it became like a really big thing. Like I remember like, you know, people knew about it, of course, but it wasn't like, holy shit, biggest game in the world. For League of Legends, do you think it's mostly because everyone just... It was free. It was there. Everyone got into it. Or you think there's something special about that genre or that art style or how Riot makes games that grab people's attention? Yeah, well, I think they kind of they hit a few, you know, they hit a sweet spot historically 
Uh, one is that they're right there at this you know moment where free-to-play games become a thing, uh, the sort of move from games as a product to games as a service. Um, and so they also, they're there at the moment when the genre of MOBAs, sometimes you call them action RTSs, um, you know, there's a long court case over who has the rights to the Warcraft 3 Dota variant. And sort of the result of that court case is really nobody had them. And so you had a couple companies that came out and made their own variations. And Riot, you know, in I think a very shrewd move, you know, took kind of the Dota formula, this 5v5, you're on a map, you've got this kind of fantasy stylings. Uh, and they took out some of the weird stuff, they made it more accessible. Uh, and that made uh, the number of players grow very, very quickly. Uh, it was an easy game to get into. It had this appealing art style. Uh, and it's right there also at the beginning of Twitch, uh, when live streaming really kind of makes actually kind of the infrastructure of esports possible. So you got a couple different historical trends that hits at the right time, and that really lets uh, League of Legends take off very quickly. And maybe it's wrong for me to try to parallel sports to esports to traditional traditional sports to modern esports but when i think of sports i think all right there's kind of these main players especially in the u.s you think of football basketball there's nfl nba nhl mlb and of course there's other sports but there's it feels like there's kind of like five four or five major ones and then there's some surrounding ones that aren't as big and they're all vying for this top spot everyone talks about how because football is dangerous that Maybe basketballs are taking it over because the personalities are so big and the league is more, it's definitely more popular and more talent filled than ever. Is that similar with esports where there's maybe four, five, six major games that people would consider like, okay, these are the premier titles out there? Or is it even more spread out? Because it feels like every single developer, every single publisher out there, you'll hear always hear and this will be optimized for esports, or this could become an esport. But it never seems like it's that easy. It seems like there's only a few at the top. Is that kind of the case? Yeah, there was definitely a hot moment in like the the mid 2010s where everybody was trying to be like, "This is our esport. This is what we're doing." Um, people have wised up a little bit since then, but there's definitely you know there's definitely a pyramid. There are the premier esports. There are the ones that some people tune into. Uh, you know, if they have a real investment in the game, so those are kind of your Halo esports, your Rocket League esports, and uh, then there are a bunch of you know much smaller ones. And um, you know, there's there's an interesting line of you know all esports are competitive gaming, but not all competitive gaming is esports. Um, and I think there's something to be said for you know there's there's esports. To me, you become an esport when you start building up this infrastructure of of leagues and sponsors, you know, dedicated rules and tournaments over time. Um, but I think, you know, there's, there's still a bit of a gray area of where you flip from being a, a competitive game that people just, you know, enjoy playing against each other for the joy of doing that to actually becoming a, a dedicated esport. Does it almost have to be at times organic when it comes to what actually becomes an esport that catches on? Because sometimes it just feels like the more that people hone in on that and say okay from the word go this is going to be something we want to be an esport do you need to have that mindset and that infrastructure in place early or sometimes is it best if it's kind of a happy accident yeah i think it's really really hard to force an esport and overwatch league is probably the exception that proves the rule um but if you think of like up to 2016 what are the premier esports you got 
you've got League of Legends, you've got Dota, you've got um, StarCraft, and then you've got something like Counter-Strike and and maybe Melee uh, and fighting games in general. And, you know, all of those have had, you know, they've been doing things for a really long time. Um, you can trace really the origins to all of those except League of Legends to like the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and so those are things where really kind of the passion in the scenes with this grassroots, you know, really carried it for a long time. And it's only when you see publishers, you know, get interested in games, not just as a product, but games as a service, something they're going to, you know, keep people engaged with over long periods of time that esports goes from being kind of this quirky thing that people do with our games to actually, this is part of a coherent strategy to keep people engaged with our brand. Um, so yeah. There's, you know, it's it's really, really hard to force it. And when people have tried to force it, it usually blows up in their face. Um, Shoot Mania is kind of the classic example of that. It was a it was like, we are all in on esports. And then it just like fell flat, flat on its face. Um, and so, you know, in part, kind of the best you can do is design your game to be as esports compatible as possible. Um, but, you know, there's always going to be an element of chance. Um, does your community pick it up like an eSport? And as these different developers and maybe especially publishers are trying to fight for dominance in the eSports e space, are they also fighting for visibility on different platforms such as YouTube, such as Twitch, and in some cases, you know, ESPN2, ESPN3, something on TV? Is there currently kind of this battle to see who can get prime position? Because I, I always feel like Twitch is the default, but is there some sort of like publisher deal between Twitch and certain people to be like, hey, make sure we're at the very front during this event? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if we're, you know, we look at sort of the distribution of esports, you know, the the battle for media rights has really heated up over the last two or three years. Um, you know, Twitch obviously, you know, was crucial to the development of esports because back when I was, um, you know, kind of first getting into it, late 2000s, you know, if you were someone putting on a tournament or you were a team owner, you know, really all you had was like, here's our max concurrence and here's a couple of photos from our event. Um, if you're someone, say, at like, you know, Monster doing sponsorships, those aren't the stats you're looking for. But, you know, what Twitch did is gave you this whole rich suite of analytics that you could then take and you could talk about, you know, monthly active users, not, you know, not just concurrence, but all of this other data about your audience that would make sponsors feel a lot more comfortable. Um, so Twitch was really the unquestioned champion for a long time. And, you know, people... People came in and they tried to make Twitch rivals. Hitbox and Owned TV were around for a while, but they they really didn't kind of have the incumbency factor. Um, so it's only really recently that other other platforms have come in and tried to actually buy out the media rights for um, for esports. And one example here is like Facebook Live. Uh, it hires Snoopy, one of these you know sort of legendary League of Legends players. Um, to be part of their in-house team around esports, they're paying big money for the rights to ESL tournaments in both Dota and Counter Strike throughout 2017, 2018, um, and you know that hasn't really worked out for them. Facebook's player kind of sucks right now, um, but you know there's definitely there's definitely competition of trying to get that stuff onto onto your platform um, because you know that's exclusivity is one way to drive people to you. Is it? even worth trying to go for something like espn or fox sports because sure that introduces you to this entire new audience and 
it's a massive traditional sports platform, but I think that word traditional maybe is one of the barriers because you see the reaction just being on ESPN2 or ESPN3 for like a Street Fighter tournament. Everyone's like, not sports, not sports, not sports. And I am an MMA fan, uh, which is, of course, not the same thing, but it was still this emerging sport that people saw and were like, that's not that's not the games with the balls. Like, that's not the football. That's not basketball. And immediately there's just this visceral reaction by these people where it's like, this doesn't belong on ESPN. Do you think is the ultimate dream for one of these games to be, you know, consistently shown on SportsCenter or ESPN? Or do you think the best actual move is just continue to carve out this different online space? Um, I mean, the short answer is like, keep carving out the online stuff. Um, but but the longer answer is, you know, in my in my non-freelancer life, I'm a, you know, I'm a scholar, I'm a historian of technology. And one of my favorite quotes you know, has to do with, you know, what happens when new media comes around and it doesn't actually ever replace old media. Um, it's it assigns it a different place in the system. So sort of the classic historical example is the printing press comes around and all of a sudden handwriting becomes a way of guaranteeing authenticity. Um, which it wasn't before the printing press came around. So when I think about something like, you know, Twitch streaming and then sort of legacy television, um, the question isn't necessarily is Twitch going to replace this, but now that Twitch is here, how is it changing the role of television in this broader media ecosystem? Um, and so for a long time, you know, getting onto TV was seen as the sign of legitimacy for esports. And, you know, eventually people realize they might actually need us more than we we need them. Um, but it's, it's still true that, you know, television has a lot of prestige in it. Um, esports doesn't really look great on television. Most times that people have tried to actually broadcast esports on TV, it hasn't worked out. Um, but if you look at a group like E-League, so TBS has their sort of premier esports uh, brand E-League, and they use television uh, to do things like, you know, really good s- storytelling, um, actually, you know, doing these documentaries of teams and whatnot, sort of these traditional kind of classic good, you know, TV still really great at storytelling. It's still great at prestige. Um, and, you know, in that way, you're using that stuff to drive people to the digital product. Um, so that's, I think, a good example of how, you know, it doesn't have to be a zero sum game, you know, the actual things that television is good at, it can still be good at. And the things that live streaming is good at, it can still be good at. Um, so to me, the way forward is all about trying to think of, you know, what do these different media, what do they offer to esports? And uh, other than Shoot Mania 2, do you see any new games coming down the pipe that could shake up the current esports landscape? Because, you know, with there's Call of Duty and Battlefield now fully getting into the Battle Royale, which isn't as much, it's like not traditional esports, it's a little bit different, but some of the most popular games just in general on Twitch, of course, you see Fortnite every goddamn day. Is there something that you're kind of looking at, whether most likely in 2019 that could break into the regular esports watchers rotation? It's hard to say, but I mean, Rainbow Six Siege has been picking up a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of viewership in sort of the last year or so. Uh, And they're an interesting example because they're, you know, a game that launched with, you know, some some idea like maybe we'll be an esport. 
Um, but rather than what people were doing for a long time, which is have like a giant, you know, million dollar launch tournament, and try to drive a bunch of eyeballs to your game. Um, they took, I think a much smarter approach, which was trying to get a bunch of small tournaments, you know, while they actually worked on the game, trying to change the parts that didn't seem like they were esports ready, making the rules, um, more aligned with kind of, this is actually a good game for professional gaming, um, while, you know, doing these small hundred dollar, thousand dollar tournaments and slowly that grew the scene. And, you know, now they've actually launched a true sort of pro league with, um, you know, relegation and everything. And so these dedicated teams participating in it. Um, so I think that one is really, that one's set to continue growing, uh, over the next year or so. I don't know if it's going to blow up the same way that like Fortnite is, um, you know, and, I'd be I'd be lying if I said I know what the next big thing is, but the life cycle for esports is, you know, surprisingly short. I invited you on here to give me all the secret answers to the next big thing. I'm just <laughs> thoroughly disappointed. You don't know what game will explode and make all this money. I, I I love how you brought up Siege because Siege is one of those games that I just I you know what I've played like five minutes of it but i think about it a lot not because of how it plays because of the life cycle of that thing and how it went from this seems kind of successful to just constantly growing well after release and of course in sports again like the nba really changed a lot of the freedom of movement rules over the summer and now players Mm -hmm. are adapting to that they're understanding like okay can't really stop someone when they're going for a drive or i'll get fouled Games have updates that completely shift balance, that add characters, that in the terms of Rainbow Six, that game is ever-evolving. Do games often have a big comeback after a new update drops? Or maybe, it, I mean, to flip that around, are there, are there times where a new update just messes with a game so much that people fall off of it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there have been, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, so definitely one one kind of classic one is... StarCraft II, you know, it comes out in 2010. It's right at that sweet spot of here's Twitch. Here's this sort of new interest in esports. And, you know, it's really, it is the king of esports for about, you know, two, two, maybe three years. And then its first expansion, Heart of the Swarm, comes out. And it really kind of shits the bed. Um, And, you know, one issue in that is, you know, the zerg and the game were given a bunch of siege units that would sort of create free units every you know 15 seconds or so and you could see the idea the kind of concept was cool which is you're really going to lay siege to your opponent's base with an infinite number of cheap units um but in practice what that did is make these really long boring drawn out stalemates there's like one really notorious game that goes on for like two hours or something and finally one person like actually tabs out checks reddit and gets disqualified as as a result um so that you know there were other issues with starcraft at the time um but that certainly you know that series of changes to the game really drove people away from it um and you know to, to pick up other games so yeah um there's an interesting and there's an interesting parallel in sports and you can think about things like the mound in Major League Baseball being lowered in like the late 1960s, um, where if you're MLB, of course, you ultimately you want to keep people engaged with the game. Uh, and sometimes that means going to making adjustments that are the kind of adjustments that viewers want, um, because there's lots of competing constituencies in any any sport. You have the players who want to play a certain way, the teams who want to play a certain way, uh, and, you know, then the league who want to keep, you know, viewership really high. 
So sometimes we hear that, well, in the ecosystem, all of everybody's interests are aligned, but it's never quite that easy. Uh, and, you know, one one simple example is earlier this year in Overwatch League, you know, everybody thought NYXL, the New York team, was, you know, the best team in the league. And then right before the playoffs, um, the rules changed that really kind of ruined what was their signature strategy, these sort of dive compositions. Um, and, you know, as a result, that was good for the game in the sense of like it added in more variety, but it really kind of screwed over this team. So, um, you know, negotiating between those is to me a really interesting question of, you know, what is the actual responsibility of the publisher to the teams to, you know, both deliver a quality experience to viewers, but also, you know, be fair to teams who have put time and energy into learning particular styles. Yeah, the idea of a meta is so nuts because I probably have like 600 hours in Overwatch, of course, not even remotely close to a look at me, I'm getting paid to play this game competitively level, but when the minor changes mean a lot to me, like when we, we, my team, my group was never much of a dive comp people, when that really started to come into vogue, we were like, I, I barely know how to counter this, or when they switched how Roadhog's hook worked, like he was my guy, he's my dude, who I've like 400 hours in, it's like, oh god, now what? I have no idea what to do, and I couldn't imagine what that would mean for someone who maybe that is their main and this is their living, and suddenly the character is just so wildly different. And one thing that also fascinates me about that is, I mean, everything about sports, esports or otherwise, there's a lot of access to the athletes these days, much more than before, where everyone's on Twitter, everyone is on Instagram and more importantly, especially with esports, people are on Twitch and maybe they're practicing on Twitch or just show, like showing like, okay, I'm going to just play like five competitive games of Overwatch right now. And you get to see people who are just incredible or the best at, in the world at this game play. How big is the industry of professional players on Twitch who practice the games they play? And is this part of sort of a supplemental income? Because if you're if you're ninja and you're one of the best Fortnite players, at least to a certain extent, you can just everyone wants to watch you. Personality, boom, he's making all this money. Do a lot of esports players make maybe even more through Twitch, YouTube, and other streaming platforms? I mean, yeah, definitely. A number of you know, I can't, I can't tell you who, but a number of people from Overwatch League season one are you know, in some ways, sort of realize that I could probably make more money being a Twitch streamer, um, but. It's an interesting, you know, question to me about access. And, you know, this sort of goes, again, taking a historical perspective, thinking about, um, you know, what is changing ideas about celebrity and how much we expect from the people we are fans of. Um, traditionally, if you go back to the mid 20th century, um, celebrity was produced in part by the sense of being inaccessible, that if you wanted to talk to Marilyn Monroe, you know, you were going to need to go through several bodyguards, managers, PR agents, you know, whatever. It was going to be very hard to do that. Um, but there's been a major shift because with social media, you know, we expect a lot of immediacy from, you know, our, you know, our micro celebrities, you know, be they fashion influencers or, or esports influencers. And, you know, that that's both good and bad because, of course, I love to watch a lot of my my favorite players practice. Not all of them do. It changes a lot based on the game they play, what kind of contract they have with their team, um, and just, you know, the culture of different games. Um, but it also, you know, that's just part of what gets people into trouble. And we can think of, um, you know, all of those, you know, 
hashtag heated gaming moments um, where different Overwatch League players have, you know, really said some dumb shit um, and, you know, were rightly excoriated for it. So, and part of that is, is, you know, the more access we demand from our celebrities, the less curated the image becomes and the more difficult it is to sort of control your image in public. And so while I'm not, you know, condoning any of obviously any of the sort of terrible things that people have said there also is this sort of broader historical perspective that points out that like we're asking more of these people than ever before and you know no wonder that you know trouble is happening as a result how sticky can that situation get when it comes to sponsorships too because if these different uh, these different people who are involved in esports might, in a split second, say the wrong thing on a stream. Have there been cases where sponsorships have been pulled because of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's when I was working with the team. That was something we were sort of constantly wary of: is making sure that the players knew that these are the things you can't say, these are the things you can't do. Um, and it's always a balance because, of course, you want players to be themselves. Um, if they feel like every single word they're doing is being um, policed, that's going to, you know, really impact their ability to, you know, engage authentically with their audiences. Um, but at the same time, you know, you want to be, you want to be wary and know that there's a responsibility that they have to their sponsors, responsibility to their fans, and just, you know, also, you know, trying to actually be the most, you know, inclusive, uh, you know, uh, streamer they can, content creator they can. Uh, as I said before, I care about Overwatch dearly. Like I, there was just there's times where I obsess over it and how I could have done better, or how the teamwork actually came together with different characters. But I just can't bring myself to care about Overwatch League. Hmm. I try. It's one of those things. Like as soon as it came out, I'm like this is my shit. This is my this is my gateway drug into esports because I love Overwatch and I obsess over the real nitty gritty of it. So for me, for someone who's you know lapsed and not able to get into it, what's the current state of Overwatch League, and do you think it is working as intended? You kind of talked before about it being manufactured and working in a way where like they manufactured this, like we're going to do this big move with Overwatch as an esport, and unlike I'm going to sorry, I'm so sorry, Shoot Mania. Unlike Shoot Mania, it was one of those things that actually caught on. Is it still doing as well as you think they expected it would? Yeah, so I sh- I should say that I'm I'm writing my dissertation about Overwatch League, so I've got a lot of thoughts on this. Um but, you know, one there's a couple of ways we could break that question down. One is sort of what is the character of Overwatch as a game as an esport. Uh and you know, we'll get sort of into philosophy of design here. One of the things that, you know, I think makes esports, becoming an esport is really kind of the ultimate game design challenge because people are going to push your game to the limits, trying to eck out every tiny advantage they can. Uh, And that means really, you know, exploring every nook and cranny of the mechanics, everything that's emergent about them. Um, And one of the sort of, I think one of the defining characteristics of an esport is that, of course, it has to be fun to play. Because you need a big, you know, a huge number of casual players that kind of form the basis of your pyramid. That's going to be, you know, 10 million casual players, you know, 100,000 competitive ones, you know, and then, you know, 150 elite players. Um, so you need a huge number. You know, it needs to be accessible and fun for a lot of people. Then it also needs to be deep and compelling for the small number of people who are actually going to take it pro for you and going to treat it like a job. 
then you also need it to be fun to watch. So those are sort of, and those are not necessarily the same. Um, and one of the things I think design-wise that makes something fun to watch is the balance between um, sort of, you know, periods of intensity and periods of relaxation. So if you think of, you know, something like Overwatch, you know, in tradition, in, in something like Payload, you know, you're going to have a, you're going to have a fight and then it's going to be a rest. You're going to have a fight, it's going to be a rest. Um, so you do have that sort of on and off balance. At the same time, though, it can be a little bit predictable. And sort of my design critique of Overwatch would really be that um, what you're looking for in a fun to spectate game is not just that it's, you know, you have these periods of tension and release, but you also have tension and release at unpredictable intervals. And so that's what I think makes, um, you know, something like Dota so extraordinary to watch is that there always are going to be, you know, fights and then there are going to be periods where people are farming up and preparing for the next fight. You need both tension and release, periods of high intensity and sort of periods of relaxation, but you need them at unpredictable intervals. And the problem, I think, with payload as a mode is that, you know, if you actually went in and were able to go, you know, look at the time between fight, relax, fight, relax, it would be pretty standardized. Certainly the standard deviation would be much lower than something like Dota, the distance between, you know, fights and Dota. Um, it's always, there are always going to be periods of relaxation where people are farming up and then team fights, but the actual distance between them is really, really unpredictable, which maintains tension while you're watching. Um, Overwatch is, you know, that's maybe a fundamental design problem of Overwatch. Uh, and, you know, that's something I'm curious to see, you know, what kind of changes they make to the game going forward. Now, as far as Overwatch League, sort of, you know, the wrapper on Overwatch that turns the game into an eSport, I think it's doing a really great job. Um, and think of, you know, the storylines from season one, sort of all of a sudden these, you know, incredible, um, you know, the players and sort of the, the celebrity that's been built around them. Um, you know, Blizzard has always been really amazing at community management and sort of that you know, that shows in Overwatch League. Um, I think there are questions about, you know, where is the new audience coming from? Um, you know, I know that Overwatch League's teams are expecting viewership to rise season on season to season. Um, that leads to the question of, well, you know, if season one was all about getting Overwatch fans to watch Overwatch League, some of whom did and some of whom didn't, then the next question is, well, where is where is your next spate of fans coming from? Uh, and I don't strictly know what the answer to that is. So I'm curious to see. That, that seems, I, I understand why they want to see growth year over year, because every company does, every business does. Mm -hmm. It's all about how can we see these, these charts and graphs look more impressive over time. But let's say it's suddenly 2020 and Overwatch is what, four years old at that point? Do you think there will ever be a need for a full-blown Overwatch 2? Because... There's no League of Legends mm -hmm. 2 as of now, and that game is now up there in age. Do you think at this point it makes more sense for companies just to keep aggressively updating over time or tweaking based on need? Or will there be a moment, or do you, do you foresee a moment where with Overwatch those numbers start either being steady or slightly going down, and they will release a sequel in order to spark interest again? I think it's likely, um, in part because, you know, these... The teams that are in Overwatch League paid a bunch of money to be there. Um, and it's sort of a question of, you know, what kind of responsibility does Blizzard have to them? You know, who have put so much 
uh, so many resources into the game. So, you know, I think if, you know, viewership is not growing and the teams are getting antsy because these teams, you know, a lot of them are funded by traditional sports teams. Traditional sports teams really make their money on television contracts. Um, you know, they're they're sort of thinking the same way that, you know, the, the in theory, they think their big money is going to come from media rights someday. And if viewership isn't rising year on year, all of a sudden, what you imagine to be your big revenue stream is not going to be paying out the way you wanted it to. If that happens, I think we will see a really dramatic overhaul. Um, and there's a couple ways that can go. There's there's you know, maybe jumping the shark, um, where you just start doing really silly, crazy things, lashing out, trying to get, you know, people to just pay attention to the game. Or, you know, alternatively, there's maybe a more a difficult, but I think ultimately better process of identifying what's not going right with the viewer experience here and trying to to fix that. And so that's, you know, an example of that is Blizzard responding to the Heart of the Swarm expansion in StarCraft II, People didn't really like it. Coming back for Legacy of the Void, um, you know, about two years after that and trying to figure out, okay, what's not working? Let's fix it. And they've been rewarded um, that StarCraft is, you know, the viewership bottomed out, but now it's been rising slowly for another, for about the last year or so. I have, this is like maybe a dumb observation, but maybe a true observation. We'll find out. I feel like with most sports that you're a fan of, if you're a fan of football, you don't need to love playing football if you're a fan of basketball maybe you have a more of appreciation after watching the nba but you don't need to go be like okay cool now i'm gonna learn how to set screens and and do layups and everything like that do you mm-hmm. think we're talking about the growth of overwatch over time are most of the people who are overwatch league fans avid overwatch fans or do you think there is a sector of the community who are these people who maybe even never played overwatch but just like watching it Yes, I mean, based on my kind of research in this space, it's it's pretty even. It's almost 50-50. Um, there's a large number of people who watch because they just find the game uh, compelling and they find the storylines compelling. Um, they find the people who play it compelling and they care about their team, be it actually their local team or the team that they've chosen to be a fan of. Um, so I certainly, you know, I this year I've probably played 10 hours of overwatch and i've watched probably you know 60 or 70 hours of overwatch league um and i would consider myself probably pretty pretty typical among fans uh not all fans of course but you could find a lot of people who have chosen to enjoy overwatch league as a product that way um so yeah i I think that is you know there's i don't think you strictly need to be playing the game to enjoy it um but a lot of that has to do with the fact that Overwatch League does you know, a ton of work uh, in producing sort of story-driven content. Um, and, you know, the teams are producing a lot of stuff for you to get to know the players and so forth. There's a lot of there's a lot of spots where you can latch on. If you compare that to something like Dota, um, where the teams aren't necessarily doing that work, where Valve is totally hands-off, um, I think you would find that the percentage of people who watch Pro Dota... Uh, who don't play it is much, much, much lower than an Overwatch. Did you come from a traditional sports fandom background? Like, were you a big baseball, basketball, whatever guy? And then Overwatch, or in general, esports came into the picture. You're like, oh, this is a great transition point. Or was this your first experience with sports? 
Um, I was a pretty fair weather sports fan growing up. I mean, I grew up in Atlanta uh, when the Braves were really, really good. So um, for most of like the 90s and 2000s, it was sort of just a given that we were going to be in the playoffs, even though we only won in 95. Uh, And I played like varsity tennis in high school, but I really it was playing StarCraft 2 that, you know, got me into esports and especially got me into writing about esports because I realized pretty quickly that I was not going to be you know, a great player anytime soon. Um, but I do like, you know, and, and I'm PhD student at UNC Chapel Hill, so I'm extremely into college basketball now. Um, so I do, you know, while I wouldn't call myself a sports fan, I definitely do. You know, I'm not opposed to them in any way. And I think sort of the idea that you're one or the other, that it's a zero sum game uh, doesn't really, the reality doesn't hold up once you talk to people and you know, figure out what they like. Do you think there is this massive interest in not just esports, but esports coverage? And maybe I'm asking you, like, hey, how's your job going? Which is not exactly what I'm doing. But it, you think about right now, there is this just insatiable hunger for NBA coverage because it's such a gossip league. It's it's so much more than the game. It's who's getting traded. It's who's getting bought out. It's who is angry at this person? It's beef, it's everything like that. I, I really enjoy The mm-hmm. Ringer and enjoyed Grantland before it, but a lot of it right now is sort of beyond ba- – like, of course, there's the nitty-gritty basketball, but there's also, like, we just want to know more about these people. Is that starting to form around esports where people want to hear about the crazy stories about the specific players and the changes coming and the intricacies of the game? Have you seen a major interest in that? Yeah, I mean, people have always been really driven by, you know, I, my sense is people's fandom tends to really latch onto players, sometimes more so than teams. That can present a problem if you're someone like Noah Winston owning Immortals, and it's your view that um, it's, you know, sustainable fandom is fandom attached to teams, not players. Uh, but with something like the NBA, again, there's you know, there's something about NBA's like Twitter culture um and you know it's kind of total fluency with social media it's very young players um kind of that bombastic and it's a game that allows for a certain degree of individualism um you know obviously football is very young players but you know could you name every offensive lineman on your local team probably not um whereas you know basketball has that more individualistic element to it um so all of those things you know i think that they tie together uh but certainly you know, why we tune into sports uh, is because they're really, you know, compelling human stories. Um, they Sports kind of italicizes, you know, themes we all know about victory, defeat, uh, perseverance, whatever. Uh, and so, you know, they're dramas that, you know, kind of draw out the most dramatic part. I said drama twice in that sentence, but that draw out the most interesting parts of human life. Um, and I think that's what makes them compelling. And I think each sport that they're best do the same. Yeah, and esports at their best do the same. Are there any under the radar games that you enjoy to watch competitively? Like again, this is my last mention of Shoot Mania. I'm not saying yeah. Shoot Mania, but if you go even deeper and suddenly like I really love the uncharted for esports mm. online scene. Is there anything really weird that you watch like that? There was for a while a very weird under the radar civil like competitive civilization scene. Um, that I always wanted to know more about um, because like that shit takes so long to play. It seems like it would be sort of the anti-esport in a lot of ways. 
Um, but like Team Liquid, one of these, you know, massive esports organizations signed a competitive Civ player a while back. Um, I don't think they're still signed. Um, but, you know, people people were, you know, really pushing that game and trying to see what is, you know, a way you can actually play this that's kind of esports-y. Um, same thing where there was a brief revival of the Age of Empires competitive scene um, when sort of the Age of Empires 2 HD remaster came out maybe two or three years ago. Um, and it, it was an interesting kind of historical anomaly because you think of like a, a rush in StarCraft is going to hit at like two minutes, 30 seconds if you're doing like a like a six pool as a Zerg or something. Whereas like a rush in Age of Empires is going to be like hit at like 18 or 19 minutes, which is pretty much the late game in StarCraft now. So it was a real sign of how much games have sped up and how sort of how much shorter the the feedback loops are um, in gaming now. It's is game battle still a thing? Do you remember gamebattles.com? Uh, no. Okay, so when the reason I remember I was thinking about the obscure game when I was in high school, there was this site called gamebattles.com where people would like track you essentially would set up times to go against other teams and your team would have to get approved by the moderators and they would rank like here's the top players and for this stretch I was the number one <laughs> competitive uncharted 2 player in the world which is like the shittiest trophy you could ever get in the mail like no everyone would be like what is even going on and I just always wonder like what is what other games do that I remember playing Dark Sector the game boy the game with the glaive is the only way to ever describe that game at the very tail end of its life and there was like eight people online and I just if any of those people are listening to this podcast, let me talk to you. I want to know about why you were still playing Dark Sector. I'm just fascinated by this shit. There's so many weird games outside of it that I just want to know, like, are people still playing it? All these different games where multiplayer was shoehorned into it. It's a weird, deep thing. And if you if you want a story idea, you should, here it is, find the most weird, obscure yeah, esports yeah, right. in the world. No, I love that kind of stuff. One of my favorite favorite stories i wrote about it for the was part of an article in the atlantic a few years ago uh was about when halo 2 was shutting down um a number of players sort of committed to leaving their xboxes on to continue hosting matches because of the way the software was designed they, they were hosted on um you know not on a central server but hosted by sort of local xboxes um and so they managed to like extend the official life of halo 2 by about like six or so weeks they got picked off slowly, you know, by power outages or whatever. Um, but, you know, that was a real kind of amazing story of just like holding out in the face of like total oblivion. Um, and, you know, that's that's part of what makes games compelling. Do you have kind of mapped out in your head? And a lot of this is just things will change. New games will come up. New issues will come up. But mm -hmm. Do you have in your mind what the biggest issue might be in the world of esports in 2019? Is there something bubbling up right now that you think will kind of dominate the headlines moving forward, whether it be an Overwatch, Dota, League of Legends, or yeah. otherwise? Well, I think there's a bubble coming, and that's kind of the the big spoiler. Um, and a lot of that is because sort of two related issues. One is 2016, 2017 that's when you, know, you see this huge wave of venture capital investment into esports. And if you're, you know, someone at Sequoia Capital or whatever, um, you know, your kind of culture of investing is going to be like, okay, 
I'm looking to see a five to 10 times return on investment in about three years. That's just sort of standard if you're doing, you know, investments into startups. And a lot of these esports presented themselves as startups to attract that kind of money. Um, the problem is, so, so that means that those bills are coming due and, you know, in 2019 and into 2020. Um, at the same time, kind of the esports biggest, dirtiest secret is that it's really poorly monetized. Um, so if you went and looked at sort of the value of the NFL as an industry and, um, what's the word and divided it by the number of fans, you'd find that NFL is generating on average about 63, $64 per fan. Um, compare that to esports. <laughs> esports is like making maybe $6 a fan right now. Um, as an audience, it's really, really poorly monetized. And that's kind of the big question is, we got a lot of eyeballs. How do we start actually, you know, creating value for sponsors such that sponsors pay more? How do we create value for um, the broadcaster or rather the distributors like Twitch? Um, so trying to actually maximize, um, you know, the, the sort of the financial maturity of the audience is the big question. Um, and everybody's trying to solve it. And, you know, if I wanted to be kind of in my contrarian mood, I'd say, well, this is a generation that grew up on free culture. Um, pretty much everybody who's an esports fan is, you know, people who had did YouTube, they did Facebook, they did all these other things. Um, you're used to getting culture for free. And so you're not necessarily someone who's going to be inclined to, you know, pay for, you know, premium subscription content. Um, so all of these present, you know, significant barriers to monetization in esports. And I think the challenge is that, those aren't those will get solved eventually. I, I believe that because um, I believe that esports really is just an expression of the great human need to compete with whatever technologies you have available to you. Um, but because you have a bunch of money that's in the ecosystem that's waiting for its bill to kind of come due in you know the relatively near future, and that's probably not going to happen, that's a recipe for a bubble. So. Um, that's, I think, going to be the big story of 2019 is there's going to be a lot of teams that flop um, and there's going to be a lot of teams that have to refinance as a result. I have another dumb question. Do you think they would be beneficial for a lot of these teams and a lot of players in general to use their real names and not like XXX Sniper 420? I'm not saying anyone's <laughs> actually called that who's a professional scene, but it, yeah. just in terms of... I hate legitimacy because it is legitimate, but in terms of maybe attracting people outside of just the gaming scene, um, do you think it would help if this just like, and here's the number one player in the world, Jason Smith? Yeah. Uh, we will say that that not all handles are created equal. <laughs> um, so, but at the same time, you know, a lot of times we can think of, you know, A-Rod, Tiger. I mean, it's not like we we don't create you know, names, even if they're based on, you know, a, a player's real name. Um, so I don't really see that as an impediment to esports. Um, you know, I think it preserves a degree of authenticity. Uh, and if you're, you know, someone who, you know, grew up on the internet, you're like totally used to like screen names, um, be it Twitter handles, forum names, whatever. Um, it's not, you know, as, as the, you know, just, esports audience you know starts to grow up there's really there's really nobody in esports who hasn't you know been familiar with kind of the internet and it's and it's kind of cultural conventions so i don't see it as an obstacle 
uh last major topic here we've heard so much especially i feel like the fighting game scene is the one that gets called out the most about this concept of it being a boys club of mm-hmm. it being drenched in sexism or just awful comments in general and we talked before about on these streams it's 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 always hard when you are suddenly always live and sometimes dumb things slip but then there's things where it's like you just shouldn't ever say that in private or public or think that or otherwise have you seen progress in esports in general where it's more inclusive where people are starting to understand that i'm I can't be an asshole. You shouldn't be an asshole in general, but definitely not on these major public platforms. Is it starting to turn a bit? I mean, I think there's definitely been progress, but the progress is unevenly distributed. Um, I think this is a bit of a diversion, but one of the biggest challenges uh, in thinking about esports is the fact that the word esports is both like the collective noun and the plural. So it refers to like all of the individual esports, but also this big amorphous institution called esports. Um, and sometimes that can lead us to really flatten over the differences in different scenes um, because fighting games is very different culturally and economically um, than League of Legends, than Dota, than Overwatch, than StarCraft. There's all of these, you know, specific variations. And that's where people really go wrong as they assume that you know, something that's true in one scene is therefore true in another. Um, but, you know, fighting games are an interesting example because they have this incredibly strong component of face-to-face competition. Um, and in some ways, that's really, you know, it's... Obviously, people talk shit in fighting games, and that's like a, a fun thing about it. Um, but it's also, there's the, you talk shit differently when, you know, you're actually in a room, you know, fighting on the same TV with somebody. Um, you know, you're probably not going to say the same things that we would say if you were, you know, playing Dota online, everybody has a handle, you're probably never going to see this person again. Um, so fighting games is rowdy. Um, and certainly sport, poor sportsmanship does happen. Um, but I think it's very different. And it's also, interestingly, it's one of the most racially diverse scenes. Um, people have different explanations for this. Um, one is that console ownership tends to be higher among like black and Latina families uh, in the U.S. Um, but it and you know it, that probably you know pairs along with the fact that it's the more kind of time you have to spend with people who may or may not look like you, um, that's going to be the kind of thing that's going to um, ultimately force people to sort of confront their biases and whatnot. Now, for the question of you know things improving. Um, something is an interesting question of how much we expect from publishers to intervene into communities. Um, Blizzard, you know, I mentioned before that they are really a company that exists at the level it does because they kind of cracked community management as being a really crucial way to build value over time in games. Uh, and so they're, you know, as a, as a, as a company are much more willing to intervene into the culture of their games. Um, whereas, you know, as something like Valve, Valve is always going to be as hands-off as possible. Um, and to me, that's one reason why, uh, Overwatch does have a significantly higher percentage of female players and viewers than Dota is because there's actually a, a conscious attempt to control and shape and create an inclusive culture. Now it, it falls short, you know, almost all the time, um, 
But nevertheless, there's you know clearly things that companies can do to create a more inclusive culture. And I mentioned a minute ago this question of you know with respect to Overwatch League, where is the new audience coming from? Um, you know, part of it is by you know audiences that esports have not traditionally served. Um, and you know, I think esports sometimes do themselves a disservice when they try to double down on this like old school gamer archetype of like the young white dude. Um, obviously that, that demographic will continue to exist in gaming. But if you imagine that that is your core demographic, that can also be very alienating to people who might otherwise be interested, but look at, you know, what am I actually getting myself into? And regardless of whether they're interests, um, there become sort of structural barriers to participation that make it unappealing. Um, so, you know, to all the publishers out there, if, if you're listening, um, you know, diversity is not just like the right thing to do, um, just morally, but also, you know, it really is. That's a huge opportunity for growth in esports going forward. This is the last thing I promise. Just as a fan, what -hmm. are you most looking forward to in 2019, whether it be a specific event or a game that you really want to watch and see where it evolves? Ooh, well, I mean, I'm I'm going to the international in Shanghai in August. Okay, that's gonna be my personal, uh, my personal thing. But I mean, I'm also I'm thrilled for watching some Overwatch League season two, some of those games go on the road and actually do some, the whole season is still mostly going to be in California, but there are going to be home and away games. And that's going to be really cool. um, Watching what that actually looks like. Well, I now live in California, so I am now committing to at least see one event. I want, I want to go and get the full experience because sometimes sports are better live and maybe, and again, I love Overwatch and maybe this will flip things for me. Uh, Will, what are you working on right now that you could talk about and where can people find you on social media? Definitely. Um, got an article coming out tomorrow morning about Artifact, uh, the Dota 2 card game that Valve put out last month. Um, it's going to be in Waypoint. It's a 4,200-word a uh, feature on it that really kind of goes into the history of Steam's markets and how those influences the design of Valve's games. Um, you can find me on Twitter, just William underscore Parton. Uh, I tweet about a lot of esports. I tweet a lot about sort of the the trials and tribulations of graduate school, uh, and I also tweet a lot about sort of tech and culture and issues around you know algorithms, um, sort of governance, content moderation, uh, all of which are things I have expertise on, and you know I'm really interested in. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for doing this. You make esports sound just like immediately. I'm like now I want to start getting into it. The way you explain this stuff is so smart and your writing follows suit uh i again it's 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 always hard for me to get someone here to talk about esports because like man i don't have this inherent interest but when i have someone like you who can really paint a picture like this it it helps change my perspective so can't wait for all your coverage for the end of the year for the start of next year and uh yeah other than that hopefully you aren't just doing too much with all this writing and all this schooling all at once definitely Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for the kind words. Uh, And, you know, always, I love this kind of stuff. So always happy to talk about it. Perfect. Uh, Thanks to everyone for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.